Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You know what? They're angry, and they have every right, right to, be to be angry because they're not getting a lot of answers. Their health, their lives are in jeopardy. Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you back. It's good to be back. I missed you guys. You think she missed I us? know. We like having the threesome back. We need it. She didn't it. miss us, did she? I don't of think course, so. I missed you. <laughs> we have a lot to discuss. Concern and outrage growing in an Ohio village after a toxic and fiery train crash. Families demanding to know if their own homes are safe. We're going to take you live to East Palestine as they struggle to get answers. Plus, a CNN exclusive this morning. The special counsel investigating former President Trump has now just subpoenaed his former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. We'll tell you why Meadows could be such a crucial witness. Also, stunning video shows a Black Hawk helicopter falling from the sky and crashing in the middle of an Alabama highway. What we're learning about the tragic training flight that killed two National Guardsmen. We'll get to that and more, but we're going to begin in East Palestine, Ohio, where there are reports of fish and animals dying. The air smells like chemicals. The residents are demanding answers nearly two weeks after a train loaded with toxic chemicals derailed and burned in their town. It was a heated town hall meeting last night. Families wanted to know, can they drink the water? Can they breathe the air? Can they even live in their own homes anymore? Or will they get cancer? Thousands of fish have been turning up dead in local creeks. People say their pets are becoming sick. And there is a stench that residents say smells like burning plastic and nail polish remover. Our Jason Carroll was at last night's meeting and he joins us now live from East Palestine. Jason, hello to you. They have a reason to be concerned. This train was carrying vinyl chloride, which has been associated with liver, brain, and lung cancers. Yeah, I mean, we heard all these concerns last night, and there are a lot of them. One of the main concerns that a lot of folks talked about, Don, was will there be long-term health monitoring for the people who live in the infected area? And who's going to pay for that and for how long? Uh, Those who left really left with the feeling of feeling like this is something that is going to take more than one town hall to make sure that all their questions are answered. Frustration, anger, and unanswered questions in East Palestine, Ohio. Are my kids safe? Are the people safe? Is the future of this community safe? The mayor leading the meeting, at times speaking through a bullhorn to answer questions from distressed residents, still worried about returning to their homes, despite evacuation orders being lifted last week. The railroad did us wrong. So far, they've worked with us and they're fixing it. But if that stops, I will guarantee you... I will be the first one in line to fight that. Officials trying to answer the community's questions. That evacuation zones have been determined by the Department of Transportation and other 
As many residents are demanding more testing of air, water, and soil. We're not going to let them stop the testing until you're satisfied. That's where the testing stops. Not present at this community meeting, Norfolk Southern Railroad. No, Norfolk Southern didn't show up. They didn't feel it was safe. In the 11th hour, the company that owns the train that derailed sent a statement saying, unfortunately, after consulting with community leaders, we have become increasingly concerned about the growing physical threat to our employees. Okay, well, if you're afraid that somebody from Palestine is going to hurt your employees, what exactly did you do to us? You feel the anger and frustration. I'm scared. From my family. I'm scared from my town. I grew up here. I'm related to 50% of them. Cleanup efforts are underway. The governor telling residents Wednesday the municipal water is safe to drink. His statement comes after new test results from the state Environmental Protection Agency found no detection of contaminants. Officials say the toxic spill was largely contained the day after the derailment and that tests have shown the air quality is safe. They are still suggesting those with private wells get their water tested. I need help and I'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to make this right. And Don, later today, the head of the EPA, Michael Regan, he'll be on the ground. He's heading in from Washington, D.C. He's going to be meeting with state and local leaders. He'll be hearing from residents as well. Don. We'll be watching. Jason will be covering. Thank you very much, Jason. And in our 8 o'clock hour, we're going to speak to a mom who attended that town hall. We're going to find out how she and her young daughter are feeling physically and emotionally. And as we wait for that, we move now to a CNN exclusive. As a source tells me that Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has been subpoenaed in the special counsel's investigation into January 6th. I'm told that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is seeking both testimony and documents from Mark Meadows, who received this subpoena last month. This is Smith's latest significant and aggressive move. It matters because Meadows has firsthand knowledge of Trump's actions on several fronts. He was in and out of the Oval Office on January 6th as rioters were storming the Capitol. He was also on that infamous phone call that happened between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Remember, Trump wanted him to find more votes. Meadows was also in that bananas December 2020 White House meeting with Sidney Powell and others about election fraud claims. Meadows also visited a Georgia audit site at that time, and he sent emails to the Justice Department and officials there about unsubstantiated fraud claims. Meadows' attorney and the Justice Department are not commenting about this subpoena. We don't know how he'll respond, but it could set up a clash over executive privilege. I'm told that Meadows got his subpoena before former Vice President Mike Pence did, and he overnight is vowing to fight that one. I'm going to fight uh, the Biden DOJ's subpoena for me to appear before the grand jury because I believe it's unconstitutional uh, and it's unprecedented. Uh, I'm aware that President Trump is going to bring a claim of executive privilege. Uh, That will be his uh, claim to make. Uh, That's his fight. Uh, My fight is on on the principle of separation of powers in the Constitution of the United States. A lot of developments overnight. CNN's Paula Reed joins me now from Washington. Paula, I think also we'll start with hearing from Pence. You know, he's saying he's arguing something differently than what he expects Trump to argue. Is there a legal case to be made there for the former vice president? 
Well, this is a really novel legal theory, Caitlin. He's arguing that in his position as president of the Senate, he is part of the legislative branch and therefore should be protected from a Justice Department subpoena under the speech and debate clause. And usually this appears, this applies to lawmakers, potentially even their staffs. The courts have taken a pretty broad view of this. So he's really playing at the edges of this. But look, this will likely go to the courts. I will notice, I will note, though, that he, when he was trying to avoid testifying before the January 6th committee, he argued that he was part of the executive branch and therefore should not be compelled by Congress to testify. So he's certainly persistent in his constitutional arguments, though he has not been very consistent. Yeah, we'll wait to see how that plays out. But Jack Smith has clearly been very busy. We're also learning that he's locked in eight secret court battles. What do we know about these? And Caitlin, the sheer number of challenges that Smith is facing from witnesses, it's truly extraordinary. It's a reminder of how former President Trump and his associates tend to handle legal proceedings, which is to fight, delay, fight, delay. And here, these secret court battles, the way they, they pan out will really dictate a lot in terms of executive privilege and the future of, of the separation of powers. There were some really interesting constitutional questions here, but it's also an important reminder that even though people see subpoena is for Meadows or for Pence and think, oh, the special counsel investigation is wrapping up. I mean, the fact is that there's a long road ahead, a lot of questions that still need to be litigated before all of this can be resolved and the special counsel can make an ultimate charging decision. Yeah, he's clearly been very busy. And Paula, you have also been very busy. You broke some reporting overnight when it comes to Biden's classified documents and a new search. What have you learned? And that's right, Caitlin. We've learned that the FBI has conducted two searches at the University of Delaware in connection with its investigation into the handling of classified documents at these multiple locations connected to President Biden. We've learned that these two searches were conducted on two different days, and they looked at two different sets of documents. The first is the Senate archive. We know the president donated many papers related to his time in the Senate to the University of Delaware. The second search focused on some papers that had been sent there in recent years. Now, we are told this, these searches were conducted with a consent and the cooperation of Biden's legal team. And the FBI did retrieve some documents, but none of them appeared to have classified markings. But they're still in the process of reviewing exactly what it is that they obtained. Now, this is the fourth known location to be searched in connection with this ongoing investigation. All right, Paula Reed, great reporting. And thanks for joining us this morning. Also today, possibly in the next couple of hours, a judge in Fulton County, Georgia, is going to release a partial report from the special grand jury. They are investigating Trump's actions after the 2020 election. Obviously, Georgia was at the center of that. We'll bring you those new developments as they come. Also this morning, police are expected to hold a briefing on the Michigan State University mass shooting as we learn that the gunman had a two-page note in his pocket with a very chilling message of a and a list of targets. Thousands of people gathered last night to mourn the victims, Ariel Anderson, Brian Frazier, and Alexandria Verner. Campus and state leaders sharing messages of grief, also words of encouragement, and as always, calls for action. Our Adrian Broaddus joins us live in East Lansing, Michigan, this morning with more. You know, they, they never believe, no one believes it can come to them, Adrian, until it does. So I, I wonder what you're hearing this morning. 
You know what, this morning, uh, people are finally saying they were able to connect. Last night, the vigil was held here. And for some, it was the first time they returned to campus since that Monday night shooting. The stage where the vigil took place, so to speak, is about 50 yards from where we are right now. But this sidewalk was overflowing with people from the community, students, faculty, and staff. If anyone tried to drive around town and get through this area, it would have been impossible. Behind us, there's the rock, which is a popular symbol here on campus. It's painted white, and the color of the rock changes frequently, and it holds a message that says, always a Spartan. Below it, the names of the three who were killed, and nearby, three crosses with a heart bearing their names. Spartans are known for their loud voices, but everyone we spoke with last night barely spoke above a whisper as they described what they feel. I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict, and experiencing that night was not easy, given that a lot of intense emotions almost brought me to the brink of relapse. It's just not easy to walk through campus the same way, knowing that our community is bearing that trauma from Monday night. And I have to literally walk around with my sobriety coin, ushering the prayer that's on the back of the coin. Are you going to come back to school moving forward? Uh, yes, I will come back to school, but it's, this is something that you're never going to forget. It's always going to be in the back of your mind. MSU is something we all call home, so to have your home invaded and go through something like this is just hard for everyone on campus. Poppy, a strong display of vulnerability as well as strength. Adrian, there's this police briefing coming up today, and there are still so many questions about the guns, how they were obtained, the shooter, any connection to the university, which they don't believe that he had. I, I just wonder what the biggest questions are that people have posed to you about what they hope police can shed some light on. Some people that we've heard from are accepting that they may never know why, but if there is a way for them to know why, that's one thing they want to know. They also want to know how that 43-year-old shooter obtained the gun. Mm -hmm. They're also questioning, should he have been in possession of a gun? These are all questions that go through the minds of people who have lived through mass shootings. It almost seems to be the same questions whenever we cover these stories, but we'll hear more from authorities in about four hours, Poppy. Okay, Adrian, we'll carry that here. Thank you very much for that reporting. And this Ron. morning, two Tennessee National Guardsmen were killed after their Black Hawk helicopter crashed during a training flight. It went down Wednesday on a highway in northern Alabama. Look at that video. Goodness, Emma Walker joins us now live from Atlanta. Emma, that's frightening. What, what do you know? Yeah, it is frightening. And I can tell you witnesses there on the ground described a, a, quite a shocking scene over the skies of northern Alabama. We don't know a lot right now. We're still working to get details on what exactly led up to this deadly Black Hawk helicopter crash and more on the two Tennessee National Guardsmen who were killed in this incident. But as you mentioned, this happened during a routine training flight. Video capturing the moment when a Tennessee National Guard Black Hawk helicopter crashes near a highway in northern Alabama Wednesday. That's pretty loud and it didn't sound like a normal, I guess, motor or engine or anything running. Followed by a plume of smoke coming up over the trees. Looking out of binoculars um, 
and seeing what I saw, I can't do anything but pray. What was that noise? The two guardsmen on board the helicopter were killed. In a press release posted on Twitter, the Tennessee National Guard confirmed the helicopter involved a UH-60 Blackhawk out on a training flight and saying, we are deeply saddened by the loss of two Tennessee National Guardsmen and our prayers are with their families during this heartbreaking tragedy. The crash occurred Wednesday around 3 p.m. local time along the median of Highway 53 near Huntsville, Alabama. First responders arrived at the scene where the military helicopter was fully engulfed in flames and video captured by motorists showed thick black smoke coming from the site. Federal and local authorities are investigating the crash and no other service members or civilians were injured in the incident. Governors of both Tennessee and Alabama offering their condolences. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee saying, please join us in lifting their families up in prayer and support during this time of unspeakable grief. And Alabama Governor Kay Ivey saying the Guardsmen will be remembered as heroes and the people of Alabama stand with our neighbors in Tennessee. And first responders said when they got on scene that the helicopter was fully engulfed in flames, that it had completely burned down. And that's why it was so difficult to identify it. And it took some time, took quite a while uh, for officials to figure out who owned this Black Hawk helicopter. But look, if you look at those pictures, it is quite remarkable that no one else was injured there on the ground. Don. Yeah, amazing. And uh, caught on uh, video, like a ring doorbell, a home uh, doorbell uh, yeah. surveillance camera. Thank you, Amra Walker. Appreciate it. All right. Also this morning, fresh off her presidential announcement, Nikki Haley has a new idea. She thinks that politicians over a certain age should take a mental competency test. So what age bracket is she talking about? Is this the kind of test she means? Person, woman, man, camera, TV. They say, that's amazing. How did you do that? I do it because I have like a good memory because I'm cognitively there. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. What's your message to Democrats who like you, who like what you've done, but are concerned about your age and the demands of the job? Well, they're concerned about whether or not I can get anything done. Look what I've gotten done. I, I think it's a legitimate thing to be concerned about anyone's age, including mine. I think that's totally legitimate. I, I respect the fact that people would say, you know, you're old. And, but I think it relates to how much energy you have and whether or not the job you're doing is one consistent with what any person of any age would be able to do. As the oldest president in U.S. history, President Biden has had to address his 80 trips around the sun over and over again in interviews. But aides say he hates when people talk about his age. Many people don't like to talk about it. CNN is told it is, quote, omnipresent in nearly every conversation, though, about the former, about the current president. And today, President Biden is going to get his physical, of course, putting the spotlight once again on his age. It is likely his last exam that he'll have before he launches a bid for re-election, which we are expecting to happen soon. Many Democrats say that he'll be running against his age, in part, until a Republican nominee is chosen. In fact, one central message in new Republican candidate Nikki Haley's campaign is that the U.S. needs younger leadership. In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress. 
in mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. CNN's Isaac DeVere joins us now. Isaac, I know you've been doing some reporting on President Biden, what his advisors are saying. One notable quote that stood out to me was from a Biden donor that you heard from who said, do I wish he was 10 years younger? Yeah, so does he. Uh, that's right, Caitlin. Though that donor went on to say that other than his age, there's no issue that uh, that donor could see with why he shouldn't run for re-election. And that's where this conversation really is. A lot of people feeling pretty good about Joe Biden's record, if they're Democrats at this point, feeling like uh, they have a strong case to make going into a re-election campaign. But at the same time, knowing his age is going to be a factor. It's going to be a factor in people's minds. It's going to be a factor in logistics. Uh, but you have Mitch Landrieu, uh, the infrastructure coordinator, for the White House, uh, who was saying to a couple of Democratic mayors recently, yeah, the president's age is something people want to talk about, but uh, th there are much more important numbers that they should be talking about, like COVID shots, like the unemployment rate, like jobs created. And that's where they want the focus to be going into uh, what looks like a re-election campaign coming soon. Yeah, it's a natural question that people have. You're also there reporting about some Democrats who are talking and preparing for a contingency plan in case there is this anomaly and Biden decides he's not running. What would that even look like? Well, nobody really knows, really, because it would be a very unusual circumstance. At this point in a presidential cycle, uh, it, it, we are used to candidates starting to get ready if they're going to run. We are now expecting that President Biden will run for re-election. But there are some Democrats out there uh, who we are aware of through our reporting who are looking at this and saying, look, things could change quickly. He could change his mind. There could, given his age, be a health issue. How do we get ready? But how do we get ready without seeming like we're just trying to scratch at uh, a place and things and, and being disloyal? And so it's very quietly happening among some advisors around some Democrats uh, who uh, think that maybe they could be on that list. Yeah, it's a delicate conversation, to say the least. Isaac DeVere, great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, and notice Nikki Haley when she said that yesterday. Obviously, I dig at Biden, but she said 75 and up, so that would include Trump. Yeah. Elder statesman here. This whole talk about age makes me uncomfortable. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry, when a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What do you that's talk? Not Wait, I, that's not according to me. Prime so for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll. If you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say twenties, thirties, and forties. I don't necessarily. Forties. Oh, I got another. I'm not saying decade. I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that well, you know politicians aren't in their I think prime. You need, and they to need to qualify. Are you talking about prime for like childbearing, or are you talking about prime for being president? What the facts are? Google it. Everybody at home. When is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime and they need to be in their prime when they serve because she wouldn't be in her prime, according to Google, you know, Google or whatever it is. Um, look, and you have to be careful because older people vote. Older people watch linear television, right? And so she has to be careful about turning off a certain constituency who may be her strongest set of supporters well, by more saying... more people vote than younger people. Yes, but I will that's say, the point. Age is a fair question. Remember we talked about how young Pete Buttigieg was, though? Like yeah. everyone said maybe he's not experienced enough when he was running. So I think it's a fair... A fair thing. And voters do have real concerns about yeah, Biden's well, age and Trump's age. He has said that. He said, I mean, 
President Biden has said over and over and over that, yeah, you should be concerned about my age. And, and so yeah. and he actually has brought it up. But it just makes me uncomfortable when people try to use that as sort of a wedge issue. My mom is at 80 years old. I just gave her a surprise birthday 80 party. Years 80 years young. 80 years young. For those of us she who know sharp, her. sharp, sharp, sharp. Yeah. I mean, is she as physically strong as she once was? No. But mentally, she's sharp. Could she run the country? If she wanted to, I guess she could. But it just depends on the individual. You know, so. you, having covered the the Trump White House and then and the and the the Biden White House, Caitlin, do you think because part of Isaac's reporting that I thought was interesting is about you know how much he'll be able to travel and endure all those flights cross country campaign? Do you think this campaign, if he runs, is going to look different? With yep. the, yeah, more at the White House. Well, and that's not my opinion. That's what I've heard from people yeah. inside the White House and, and allies of Biden who think, you know, a campaign is incredibly aggressive. It is really tough. When Trump was at the end of his 2020 campaign, he would do two or three rallies a day. Biden's was different because, you know, he was taking the COVID precautions more seriously than Trump was. He was not traveling in that same way. And obviously that has changed. We're in a different time for this campaign. So it will look different. He'll be on the road, but I think he'll be using a lot of surrogates as well on the road for him. He's incredibly muted. This yeah, time. You asked Landrew if he was going to be one of those surrogates last yeah. week. One yeah. of surrogate, but he's, he's incredibly muted this time. Maybe he's holding his powder to see what's going on, but it does look different because he was out front making mm -hmm. all sorts of hyperbolic statements oh. from the very beginning. Well, not the last time. Well, the last time he ran and the, the initial time he ran as well. We forget this will be his third time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This morning, investigators are looking into a third close call on a runway. Hear what the FAA chief says about the airline industry's rocky few months. And a drug that first responders and hospitals use to reverse an overdose soon could be on store shelves and even in vending machines. We're going to talk to Elizabeth Cohen about that. Yeah, that was in the courtroom. Look at that. It was a tense and emotional sentencing day for the mass shooter who killed 10 people at a Buffalo grocery store. We're going to have more in the next hour on that. And soon, a judge in Fulton County, Georgia, is expected to release a partial report from the special grand jury investigating Donald Trump's actions after the 2020 election, plus a catastrophic catastrophic. Straight ahead, the warning from the Congressional Budget Office if lawmakers don't act on the debt limit. But first, a potential game changer in the opioid epidemic, getting Narcan, the overdose reversing nasal spray, could be pretty simple. It could be as easy as buying ibuprofen. FDA advisors just voted unanimously to make the drug available over the counter. So that would be no prescription. What Narcan does is that it stops a drug overdose in its tracks. It is easy to use. Take a look at this. This is an officer in Arkansas reviving someone who is overdosing. One dose Narcan administered. Hey! Welcome back. What's going on? Hey, we're going to get you in my truck. I'm going to huh? give you a once-over, man. Wow. Our senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, joins us now. We've heard so much about Narcan for years, but it was not as easy to administer as that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, potentially people could buy it just like they buy Tylenol or Advil would probably be a game changer, right? Oh, absolutely, Poppy. It really would change things. Right now, you can get Narcan or the generic naloxone 
out of, without a prescription. You don't need a prescription right now, but you do need to go to the pharmacist. It's behind the pharmacist counter. And some people don't know it's there. Some people don't feel comfortable doing that. So let's take a look at what this change would mean. So first of all, yesterday, the FDA advisors voted unanimously to say, hey, let's put it out there, as you said, with the ibuprofen, with the shampoo, with the toothpaste, with, with everything. Right. And that final decision about whether this will happen is up to the FDA commissioner. But we feel quite confident that he would say yes to this. There's not really a reason to say no. And if approved, it wouldn't just be at like a CVS or a Walgreens. It could be at a supermarket. It could be at a gas station. Um, the folks who we're talking to who work in this business say this is great. The sort of one of the final sort of impediments to getting Narcan, which as we saw from that video, is so important, is the price. If you don't have health insurance, it can get pricey, even with some government support programs. It can still be quite pricey. So you, the idea would be you could apply if you do have health insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, you could apply that to even it over the counter. Um, that is certainly the hope. And, and okay. right now you can apply it and you don't need a prescription. So it should work the same way. Okay. My question is, um, Elizabeth, I have some here on the set. I don't know if you can see us. So I got this. I don't want to put my address on there, but. Um, I asked my doctor because lots of people come visit in the summer. They hang out, they bring their kids, they go swimming in the pool and whatever. And you don't know they spend the weekend. Poppy has spent the weekend. Yes, I have. But, and you don't know what people are doing, what they come in contact with. And so I asked if it was okay to get a prescription to have in my house. And he said, it's actually a very smart thing. I'll see if I can get it. It took a while for him to get it. There are a couple of refills on here. So... I think it's I think it would be smart if people can um, get it at home because I certainly got it. It's, I think it's been in the house since August, I think, of last year or maybe July of the summer. But how soon would people be able to get it over the shelves if there is a green light? And so I guess you think it, it is a good idea to be able to do this? Certainly. And certainly the FDA advisors thought so, too. To be clear, Don, you don't need a prescription right now, but you do need to say to the pharmacist, hey, the Narcan you have back there, would you please give me some? Oh, you know, wow. I'd like to buy some of that. So you don't need a prescription now. You just have to ask the pharmacist. And that is a bit of an impediment. So you can't get it at a gas station. You can't get it just sort of anywhere. I think it could be very useful. Again, the money is still an issue, but this should happen quite quickly. Let's take a look at where opioid deaths are right now. You can see from this graph, they are just growing wildly, unfortunately. It is such a tragedy that this is happening so that in 2021, there were more than 80,000 deaths, more than 80,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses. And if this could be easier to get, hopefully that number could come down. Yeah, it Good. could be yes. such such a game changer. Very helpful uh, to know. I've been wondering forever about that because you see the video, yeah. you see people being saved by Narcan, and so I was just like, mm. should I have one? Same with the defibrillator. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Defibrillator. I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much. All right, also this morning, there is an urgent warning coming from the Congressional Budget Office. Even if you don't, not super familiar with that. This is a warning you should pay attention to because it's about what would happen if lawmakers do not address the debt limit soon. We're going to break it all down with none other than Christine Romans. In my assessment and that of economists across the board, a default on our debt would produce an economic and financial catastrophe. That is Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen using words like catastrophe and crisis. 
She has been saying this. Not enough people have been listening. America blew past its debt limit last month, and a new report from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office warns that we could default as soon as July if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling. Big numbers, big real-world impact for all of you. Our chief business correspondent, Christy Romans, is here with how it could affect you. This is what she's been saying. And now the CBO, which is, again, not partisan, they crunch the numbers, is saying... What? We're running out of time here. We're running out of time to address a near-term problem. And the near-term problem is this debt limit, which we already hit. And now by July, it could be that we are no longer able to pay all of our bills. By July. So we've got a dozen weeks here when you could see a situation where we're not being able to pay our bills. What happens if we can't pay our bills? Well, we'll probably pay our bondholders first, right? So we don't destroy the American economy. That means we can't pay everybody else. And so that means you've got IOUs for 67 million people who get Social Security, IOUs for 2.1 million active duty military, IOUs for two, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of, of federal contractors, and that would have a terrible effect on the economy, likely cause a recession and cause just mm-hmm. a loss of confidence in the U.S. overall. So that's what, that's what happens in the very near term, and the CBO is saying that could happen in a matter of months here. July is when we run out of money to pay I was bills. so struck also by what they said about the raising feder- rising federal debt and just what we're looking at here. So this was a number that was very dour, grim, and this is a this is a storm brewing, right? And we know it's coming. If we do nothing, we will add 19 trillion dollars to the national debt over the next decade if we do nothing. And what are we talking about in Washington? We're talking about doing nothing, right? Because it's politically inconvenient and because there are very vocal, vocal voting blocks who don't want to touch Medicare and Social Security, which are some of the biggest drivers of that debt. But mm-hmm. so is defense. Mm-hmm. So are other uh, veterans benefits. And interest is rising, right? Interest payments are rising because mortgage rates or interest rates are, have been rising. So that means our interest payments are going to be more expensive. Right, that we as a country, taxpayers pay with Absolutely. our money. Absolutely. Pay the interest on what we've taken. And so our interest at, our interest costs are going to be higher. Our medical costs are going to be higher. And so there is a real unsustainable path for America's finances at the moment. And by what's what something the CBO said that really struck me is that um, in the next decade, you're going to have debt uh, that will be 118 percent of is. the size of, of GDP. That is really scary when you think that's never happened before, where your debt is so much bigger than the size of your economy. 118% of how much we're growing of our GDP. Wow. You know, I mean, that's... So it's a wake-up call and a warning to Washington, but a warning that I think is still falling on, on deaf ears. So yeah. the short-term problem is raise the debt ceiling to pay the bills we've already uh-huh. paid. The long-term problem is look at the way our government finances are structured yep. so that we don't end up in a decade. Uh, look, if you don't change something and you run out of money in the Social Security Trust Fund, the next day... The Social Security checks will be 25% less. That's right. It will just happen. It will just if happen. If don't do anything. Christine, thank you. Sorry, we had a little trouble with the magic wall. Right. Sorry. It happens. <laughs> All right, Caitlin. That is an eye-popping number, but also this morning, quote, overcoming impossible ahead. Our interview with the world-class chef, restaurant miracle worker, Robert Irvine, about turning L's, losses, into wins. W's. L's are great because you never want to repeat them. And it's okay if you fall but don't fall twice. Learn from it. He is a world-class chef, author, and someone who really just does the impossible. The place is a pigsty, and you have allowed it to get to that point. The food is tasteless. I ain't gonna listen to it no more. 
This is a wake-up call. And tomatoes are your health. You're going to lose this restaurant and you're going to lose your own life if you don't do something different. He's blunt. Robert Irvine, the host of the hit series Restaurant Impossible on our broadcasting cousin, Food Network. He helps struggling restaurant owners turn things around in just a matter of days. If you're wondering how he got so good at this, he shares it all in his new book, Overcoming Impossible. It's out now. Don and I sat down with Robert Irvine earlier this week to talk about his latest book. And Robert Irvine joins us now. Your new book is now out. This is actually a little bit different than the books that you've written before. It's not focused on recipes. What made you take kind of a different path with this? What did you want to do? Well, the business um, that I'm in is saving restaurants. Restaurant Impossible is in over 300 uh, series right now. And I couldn't get to all of them. So I thought, well, why not put it into a book and help those folks that I can't fix on television? And focus on the entrepreneurial side of it. Leadership Absolutely. is a big part of this. Obviously. Leadership is pillars. the number one. On, uh, it's like uh, empathetic leadership, followed by losing egos, followed by trust. Yeah. The three pillars that I feel is su- successful businesses run on. How does that play into? Because we don't we know we don't have to deal with any of that in this business. That's that <laughs> so it's it's empathetic leadership, managing egos, egos, and trust. So in a, in the restaurant business. It's, it's no different to any other business. And I don't, just don't, realize, uh, don't work on, on restaurants. I work on major Fortune 500 companies yeah. that are scalable, just like mom-and-pop restaurants. America was built on mom-and-pop restaurants, and nobody's helped them. So, you know, Restaurant Impossible has been doing that. And as, as I can only get to one a week, there are thousands of restaurants, over 2,000 that apply for this show every week, and I can do one. So this book is all about, look, I've made a lot of failures. I'm going to give you the pitfalls to my failures so you can see them coming. I never had that. Um, and teach you how to run your business successfully. It's not a, just a you know, check the box book. This is full of information, full of case studies of the restaurants that I fixed and the business that I fixed. But it's so interesting when you look at restaurants, we have folks come on because it's, it's an indicator, like a, a key indicator for economic either mm-hmm. health or right or not, not being healthy, our economy. But you look at what happens with restaurants, especially over the pandemic. And so I'm wondering if that affected, if that influenced this, of you trying to help restaurants, because it's, rest, it's become like restaurant almost impossible after the pandemic. The pandemic was huge for us because, as you know, the 17th of, of March, St. Patrick's Day, pretty much everything around the world fell apart. Right. We didn't. We got back on the road. Courtney, uh, head of Food Network, said, hey, get back on the road. I wanted to go back on the road. Six buses, six people on each bus. We did 66 episodes of Saving Restaurants mm-hmm. during COVID. That did spark uh, a lot of what's in there. Why do people fail? And it's those three pillars. Because we, we you know, the, the biggest failing restaurant in America is an Italian restaurant. Why? Because mom says you make great meatballs, you've got to open a restaurant, you max out your credit cards. Six months later, after all your friends have been in there, you call Robert Irvine to help you because you're $600,000 in debt. But I think the reality of this is in life, not just in restaurants, everyone fails at some point. And I was reading a quote from your book, and it made me think of Jalen Hurts, who is the Eagles quarterback, who after, obviously, they lost the Super Bowl on Saturday. I was just as sad, you know, he's from Alabama. But he had this moment where he talked about using a moment like that as a teachable moment. He said, basically, you can choose how you confront yeah. your agony. And you wrote... If you're going to take every critical note or rejection as an opportunity to allow some kind of personal vendetta to fester, 
you're not going to make it very far. How should people use their L's, as you call them? L's are great because you never want to repeat them. It's painful. You know, just to say Jalen Hurts, I was just as sad, by the way. Um, look, we're, we're put on this planet to learn and, and to engage and help people. And it's okay if you fall, but don't fall twice. Learn from it. And, and teach other people. That's what this book is all about, teaching people to look for the pitfalls in business. A fascinating book. It is Overcoming Impossible. It's now out. It's and good to shelves. see you. Thank you, Robert Irvine. Overcoming Impossible, out now. And you can stream all the episodes of Restaurant Impossible on Discovery+. Plus. Fascinating, fascinating Man. Absolutely. So questions are swirling and tensions building in East Palestine, Ohio this morning. Is the air safe? Can people return home? And who exactly is to blame for the toxic chemical spill in their town? We're going to discuss with our chief climate correspondent. There he is, Mr. Bill Weir. More CNN this morning to come after the break. From my family. I'm scared from my town. I grew up here. We pass all of the creeks and there's crew after crew with white hoses and black hoses all through the creeks. They're not telling us why and this is, this is daily. I'm driving my children to school past all of this and they're asking me questions that I don't have answers to. And they need the answer. So many, many questions. Good morning, everyone. Anger, fear, and many questions in East Palestine, Ohio. Nearly two weeks after a train packed with hazardous chemicals derailed, we're going to do a deep dive into the company behind the spill and one of the dangerous chemical that was on board there, vinyl chloride. How long will it be a threat? And is it putting residents at risk of cancer? Plus, did former President Trump break the law when he tried to overturn the election results in Georgia? We're going to find out new details today, any moment, when the judge releases parts of the grand jury's report. Also, the gunman who killed students at Michigan State University had a note in his pocket. Was he planning to attack more schools? We're going to begin, though, in East Palestine, Ohio, where families are demanding to know if it is even safe to be in their own homes anymore. It has been nearly two weeks since a train loaded with toxic chemicals derailed and burst into a raging inferno. Frustrated residents say that the air smells like burning plastic and they don't know if it is safe to drink the water. Very heated town hall meeting last night. People demanding more information from officials. So here's what we do know right now. The head of the EPA is going to East Palestine today and is set to hold a news conference. When that train derailed, emergency crews released and burned off loads of chemicals to prevent a catastrophic explosion. But it has created this gigantic, it created this gigantic plume of smoke over the town. There have been reports of pets getting sick and fish turning up dead in local creeks. The train company, Norfolk Southern, was a no-show at last night's meeting. In a statement, this is what they said. 
We know that many are rightfully angry and frustrated right now. We have become increasingly concerned about the growing physical threat to our employees. Our people will remain in East Palestine, respond to the situation, and meet with residents. We are not going anywhere. Well, people who live in the area are concerned not only about their health right now, but years from now, and they should be. Our Bill Weir is here to explain what these spill chemicals do. Bill, good morning to you. They really want to know what is going on, who is responsible, and what effects it's going to have on their, on their lives and their health. What can you tell us? Well, the immediate uh, disruption is so painful to see. These people are running out of money as they stay in Airbnbs. There's so much fear and uncertainty, as you see there. But if you think they're angry now, um, they will only be more angry when they have the time and the wherewithal to look into the company behind this crash. Norfolk Southern is a $55 billion rail company, uh, 12, almost $13 billion in operating revenues last year, and they have a really checkered past. This is in 2005, 14 cars derailed in Graniteville, uh, North Carolina there. Nine people died. 851 people were, were treated, but in the end, they settled for an EPA lawsuit settlement of $4 million in fines, mainly because they violated Clean Water Act laws and killed a bunch of fish. They probably settled with a lot of companies, but they've been doing sort of cost-benefit analysis in the railroad industry for a long time. And the thing that is most fascinating to me are the brakes on the train. You got to understand in recent years, Norfolk Southern uh, in particular adopted a new kind of business model, which meant a lot longer trains, two miles long, a lot fewer people. They light off tens of thousands in the, in the industry. That train was almost two miles long and we think had conventional air brakes, which brakes from the front to the back. So it can take two minutes before the back cars know to stop and they become a slinky from hell and slamming into the cars that have stopped in front. For years now, since the early 2000s, there have been electronically controlled pneumatic brakes. When Norfolk Southern first tried these, because they break every car all at once, they raved about it. They, they actually a, appealed to the transportation officials and says, you shouldn't have to inspect trains with ECP brakes. They are so effective. But then when President Obama uh, tried to make them mandatory after a bunch of derailments in 2014. She said, let's just put them on the cars that have explosive carcinogens, for example. The industry, the railroads, the chemical companies, the lobbies fought it hard. They gutted it. The final version was that longer, high-hazard flammable trains would need brakes by 2023, ironically. But in 2018, the Trump administration, Elaine Chao was the transportation secretary, rolled it back entirely. This will be the sort of um, topic, I'm sure, of the class action lawsuits that are now being filed. The response from Norfolk Southern so far, a million dollar charitable fund, 1.2 million financial aid to families, 100 plus air purifiers and air monitoring services and tests. What, what do you think, Bill? Um, I mean, you just outlined what seemed to be failures on, on so many levels, um, successful, really successful lobbying efforts, right? Um, and this decision by the Trump administration to essentially reverse what the Obama administration had wanted. What can the Biden administration do unilaterally now without an act of Congress? That's a good question. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was 
tweeted about the legal restraints of what they can do right now as a result of the Trump administration rolling that back, there would probably be a renewed call for this. Senator John Thune uh, led the charge uh, from Republican senators to kind of gut this rule and take it away. It was considered a big victory uh, for the industry. Maybe the outrage over this will force a reexamination of that, at least to label these really hazardous trains, which are rolling through suburbs Everywhere, all the time, mm-hmm. trains can or trucks can reroute around hazardous materials around city centers. Trains are stuck to the tracks they are, and really, it's the business model that incentivizes danger in exchange for profits. Yeah. Wow. Bill, can you talk to us exactly about what chemicals were in this train? Because I think that is what everyone's talking about when we're talking about the dead fish and the symptoms, and what Don said earlier. The air smelling like nail polish remover. Yeah, you've heard it described as an overchlorinated pool, burning plastic. The main chemical in there is polyvinyl chloride, PVC. It is the stuff that is in the white pipes that you see are just ubiquitous in American construction. The hidden cost of that is when it breaks down, it breaks down into a chemical that was actually used as a weapon in World War I. It creates a horrible respiratory and skin uh, disruption there. Long term, it causes cancer. Some of these other ones uh, are irritants as well, but they think that because the fish kill was immediate and hasn't continued, that it's been diluted. The stuff, at least in the water, has been diluted, and the wells in that area are deep enough that it won't be a long-term threat uh, to drinking water. But what's in the soil, how that leaches into the air, all of that remains to be seen. Bill Weir, thank you, sir. All right, now we move to a CNN exclusive this morning. We have now learned from a source telling me that Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has been subpoenaed in the special counsel's investigation into January 6th and the role that Trump played that day. I'm told that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is seeking both testimony and documents from Meadows. He got the subpoena back in January. This is the latest aggressive and significant move that we have seen from Smith. It matters because Meadows, as you know, has firsthand knowledge of Trump's actions on several fronts. He was in and out of the Oval Office that day. He was on that infamous phone call that happened in December between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, where Trump was pleading with him to find him more votes. Meadows was also in that bananas December 2020 White House meeting about election fraud claims. He also visited a Georgia audit site as they were counting and recounting votes. He sent emails to Justice Department officials about unsubstantiated fraud claims. His attorney in the Justice Department did not comment to CNN when we asked. Uh, It's unclear how he's going to respond to this subpoena. It will likely set up a clash, though, over executive privilege, given he was one of Trump's most senior aides. Meadows got his subpoena before Mike Pence got his. The former vice president, though, last night said he is going to fight that one. I'm going to fight uh, the Biden DOJ for me to appear before the grand jury because I believe it's unconstitutional uh, and it's unprecedented. Uh, I'm aware that President Trump is going to bring a claim of executive privilege. Uh, That will be his uh, claim to make. Uh, That's his fight. Uh, My fight is on on the principle of separation of powers in the Constitution of the United States. You'll notice Pence is making that argument in Iowa. He's likely to be a 2024 presidential candidate. All of this is coming as we are learning that Jack Smith, that special counsel, is locked in at least eight secret battles tied to investigations into the 2020 election and Trump's handling of classified documents. Most of the disputes are under seal, and the outcomes, though, could have far-reaching implications for Trump. On top of all of that, also this morning, the part of the Georgia's special grand jury's report on Trump's attempt to overturn the election results in that state is going to be released. 
The recommendations on criminal charges, though, are going to still be kept secret. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now. Sarah, what are we going to learn from what they will reveal today? Well, look, Caitlin, as you said, a lot is going to stay under wraps. But today we are going to get the special grand jury's introduction to their report, the conclusion of their report, as well as a section that dug into the grand jury's concerns that some of the witnesses who appeared, who testified for the grand jury, may have actually lied in their testimony. Now, look, the grand jury has been digging into efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election for months and months. And this investigation all got started back in January of 2021, when Trump called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Take a listen to part of that phone call. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Uh, you know, we have that in spades already. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. So that is the call that set this all into motion. And as you just saw before this, look, this is a grand jury that has heard from 75 witnesses, heard from people from Senator Lindsey Graham to Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, uh, to many, many others. So we're going to get sort of a sense of the tenor of what the grand jury came away with this, but we are not going to get their specific recommendations on whether anyone should face charges. If there are names in any of these sections, those are likely to be redacted today. The judge who is overseeing this special grand jury made pretty clear that he doesn't think it's it's fair at this point to name people publicly when no one has faced charges yet. Caitlin. Hmm. And we also know Georgia Governor Brian Kemp spoke with them as yep. well. Sarah Murray, we will wait for that report. Thank you. And later this hour, we're going to talk about all of this, what Sarah just laid out there with the former U.S. attorney from Georgia's Middle District, Michael Moore. So be sure to watch that. So this morning, one person is dead. Three others are injured in a mass shooting. This one last night at a mall in El Paso, Texas. <laughs> That is security camera footage, people running for their lives in panic as they heard gunshots. An off-duty officer was working security and was on the scene within minutes and took one suspect into custody. A second suspect was arrested later. Police have not revealed a motive for that shooting. The mall is next to that Walmart. Remember just a few years ago in El Paso where 23 people were shot and killed. That was in 2019. And let me take you to Michigan, where there was a very emotional vigil last night at Michigan State University, two days after the deadly mass shooting there. Students, staff, and the East Lansing community gathered to mourn three young lives taken. Governor Gretchen Whitmer spoke about the painful loss. Our Spartan community is reeling this week, and our lives and our hearts break for those lives that were shattered by gun violence. We mourn Ariel and Al, as she was known to her loved ones, and Brian, who were taken from us far too soon. We think about their families, recalling their last visit home. We hurt for their friends who are remembering their last conversation or maybe rereading text messages. So we've also this morning learned some new details about the gunman and some insight into a possible motive. Police say that he had a two-page note in his pocket that threatened shootings at other places in Michigan. Joining us now with his reporting is CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. John, good morning to you. Incredibly 
distressing to hear that he had this pretty long list of other places, Michigan, New Jersey. What did the note detail? Well, he starts off, and it's interesting, the note is dated uh, Sunday, uh, February 12th, the day before the actual shooting. But it begins with an introduction. Hi, my name is Anthony McRae. He announces that he is the leader of a group of 20 shooters, and he says, quote, I will be shooting up MSU. 20 shooters. Right. Does he name them? Uh, there are no 20 shooters, uh, but he does list these locations. And there's a fast food restaurant. There's an employment agency. There's a warehouse. There's a church. There are um, a dozen of them, but they're fairly random in that they're not other colleges. They're right. not related to each other. And two schools in New Jersey near where he grew up. Right. Wow. So they believe it was just him, even though he mentioned these 20 people, they don't think there are any other accomplices that were... No, but interesting question, because, you know, they have an obligation that's called duty to warn. If right. you're in a threat letter, you know, they have to come and tell you. So they had to go to uh, these dozen places in New Jersey, in Colorado Springs, but mostly all over Lansing. He says, you know, this team is going to finish off Lansing. Um, so they visited these places to say... You're in this threat letter. We don't believe there's a threat. We don't believe there's 20 people. But do you know this guy? What's your connection to Anthony McRae? Did mm -hmm. he work here? Did he apply for a job here? Was he let go from a job here? Especially since one of them's an employment agency, asking them to go back through their records. We had talked here the other day about um, the offender characteristics of yeah. the mass shooter, the injustice collector who, you know, collects these slights and lets them grow and marinate until they strike you know, at these targets, which are basically unexplained. Um, his letter says, you know, they hated me, they hated me, they hated me. He says, they hurt me. Um, I am told there are pictures of, you know, his crying face that are sketched in different places. So somewhere he feels, you know, wounded um, by a number of these locations. And they're digging back to try and figure out what and why. John Miller. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Also this morning, investigators are now looking at another close call on an airport runway. All of this has happened in less than a month, if you can believe that. This time, it was January 23rd in Honolulu. A United Airlines wide-body jet and a smaller plane almost collided. Lawmakers have been grilling the FAA chief, the acting chief, we should note, because there's no permanent one, on Wednesday. That comes after last month's computer outage that caused that nationwide halt of all flights. CNN's Gabe Cohen is following all this closely from Washington. Gabe, let's just start with this in third near collision because it just seems like these are happening more and more frequently these days. What do we know about what happened in Honolulu? And Caitlin, to be clear, this is the third close call that we know of. There may be others. It's something the FAA is looking into. Now, this new incursion happened on January 23rd in Honolulu, and I want to walk you through how it played out. So flight data shows a United 777 land just ahead of a small cargo plane landing on the next runway over, and that United flight then turns, and that is when the FAA tells us the plane crossed that next runway, despite being told to wait by air traffic control just ahead of where that cargo plane was landing 
landing. Uh, now, the FAA says the, the two aircraft were a little more than 1,100 feet apart, so not nearly as close to colliding as in those other two incidents at JFK and Austin, and neither plane here had to actually abort takeoff or landing, which they did in those other cases. But look, this is just adding to the list of alarming aviation incidents, and it's something that lawmakers really pushed the acting head of the FAA to answer for during that Senate committee hearing yesterday. Take a listen. Overall, I have a, a, a good sense about where we are. Can I say to the American public that we are safe? The answer is that we are. Is the, if the question is, can we better be better? The answer is absolutely, and that's the piece we're working on. And that's why Billy Nolan, who you just heard from, has announced a sweeping safety review of the FAA. And that'll include a couple pieces. There will be a summit next month with industry partners where they'll discuss ways to make the aviation industry just a little bit safer. And they're going to look through flight data to see if there are trends here. If there are more of these incidents happening, then we realize something that I think everyone here is really concerned about. Caitlin? Yeah, I can absolutely see why there is such concern for that. Gabe Cohen, thank you for following that for us. Also this morning, new footage is showing Alec Murdoch being asked directly if he had killed his wife and son. We'll tell you what he said. Also this. flaring as the gunman who went on a racially motivated massacre at a grocery store in Buffalo was sentenced. What he, more importantly, the victims' families had to say. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. The double murder trial of Alec Murdoch resumes today. After a really dramatic day in court, the jury watched a police interview asking Murdoch directly if he killed his wife and son, the chief forensics investigator took the stand, is going to be back on the stand today to testify about what he found on the phone of Murdoch's wife and son. Our Randy K. Jones is live again this morning. Walter Rowe, South Carolina. Good morning. So I think, Randy, the question is, does this interview of Murdoch undermine his alibi during the time of the murders? Yeah, Poppy, it certainly raises a whole lot of questions about his alibi on the night of the murders. This was his third interview with this lead investigator. It took place in August of 2021, just a couple of months after the murders. And from the start, you can tell he is already a suspect. Here's a look. Did you kill Maggie? No. Did you kill Paul? No, I did not kill Paul. This is the first time we hear lead investigator David Owen ask Alec Murdoch directly if he killed his wife, Maggie Murdoch, and their son, Paul. Do you know who did? No, sir, I do not know who did. Special Agent Owen had a lot more questions for Murdoch, too, including why he was wearing something different after the murders than he was earlier in the night on this Snapchat video pulled from his son's phone. What point in that evening did you change clothes? I'm not sure. I, you know, it would have been, I guess I changed when I got back to the house. The prosecution has suggested that Murdoch showered and changed his clothes following the murders. The defense pushed back on that. Wouldn't you expect to find some trace evidence of blood somewhere in the house? There was no trace evidence of blood found in the house, no. Thank you. Alec Murdoch has told investigators several times that on the night of the murders, he had dinner with his family, then took a nap, and later drove to his mother's house. 
How long would you say you were at your mom's at night? 45 minutes an hour. 45 minutes to an hour? Remember, his mother's caretaker testified Murdoch came by the house for just 15 to 20 minutes that night. At least four times during this interview, Owen asked Murdoch if he was at the kennels where the murders took place earlier that night, before he says he found his family dead. Each time, Murdoch denied being there. And you didn't go back down there after dinner until you returned to from visiting your mother? Yes, sir. Owen also asked Murdoch if it was his voice on a video investigators extracted from Paul Murdoch's phone. It had been recorded at the murder scene at 8.44 p.m., just a few minutes before Paul and Maggie were killed. And that was prior to the p.m. Was it you? No, sir. Not if my times are right. At least eight witnesses have testified that it's Alec Murdoch's voice on that recording. Murdoch also had some questions for Owen during the interview. David, can you tell me for sure? Um, did either one of them live after they were shot the first time? Is this one person, two persons, three persons? Is that the first time he's ever executed? Yes, sir. Ever? Then I recall, yes. In the whole investigation at this point? Yes, sir. And just before the interview ended, Owen made it clear to Murdoch that investigators are focused on him and only him. Do you think I killed Maggie? I have to go where the evidence and the facts are. I understand that. You think I killed Paul? I have to go where the evidence and the facts take me, and I don't have anything that points to anybody else at this time. And you could see there how that investigator was trying to nail down a timeline and some of those inconsistencies. And Poppy, one other thing worth noting, the investigator did inform Alec Murdoch for the first time in that interview that a family firearm was used in the murders and Alec Murdoch had no reaction. He didn't ask how they knew that or hmm. where that weapon was, Poppy. Wow. Okay, Randy, thank you for the reporting this morning from South Carolina. Don. So the gunman in the racist mass shooting at a Buffalo supermarket will serve multiple life sentences without parole. At the sentencing, the judge told him he deserves no mercy and will never see the light of day as a free man again. The gunman planned the May 14th attack for months. His online posts were full of white supremacist conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic rants. He then traveled about 200 miles from his home in Conklin, New York, to target the predominantly black neighborhood. Before he learned his of his punishment, the victim's families delivered tearful and angry testimonials. One man even lunged at him. We love our kids. We never go in no neighborhoods and take people out. No, no, no. You can understand why they are so angry. 13 people were shot in the attack. 10 people died, all of them black. All right, also this morning, fresh off a presidential announcement that happened in South Carolina yesterday, Nikki Haley said that she believes politicians who are 75 and above should take a mental competency test. President Biden is 80. Her former boss, President Trump, is 76. Was that a dig at both of them? We're going to talk about it next. All right, the newest member of the 2024 presidential field, Nikki Haley, 
zeroing in on age and the age of her potential rivals. You, you called him the greatest president. If that's true, then why run against him? I'm gonna keep that phone call personal. I didn't ask, I told that I thought that we needed to go in a new direction. It is time for a new generation of leaders. You shouldn't have to be 80 years old to get to Washington. And we've got to start riding the ship. We need new blood because we have some serious challenges. She didn't ask, she told. That interview coming after Haley called for a more thorough examination of older politicians in her announcement speech. In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress. And mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. Haley did not say who she believes should conduct those tests. She also did not call out Trump or Biden by name, but she didn't really have to. With Biden at 80 and Trump at 76, both would be subject to such a test. So joining us now to talk about this is CNN anchor and correspondent Audie Cornish, who would not have to take that test. But I, she could have picked 80. Slippery slope. Who knows? <laughs> Unless Who knows? you're secretly what 75. Yeah. She could have picked 80. She picked 75, making sure that Trump would fall into that category. Yeah. I mean, she. any person who enters the race right now against Trump has to delineate themselves in some way without alienating his base. So she did a lot of this not saying someone by name, but making sure to catch them in a category to which they would, like, apply. Um, she, it's sort of a point without a policy. She didn't say, and the competency test would look like X and it would be administered such and yeah. such a time. It's really to drive conversation in the direction she wants, which is a fundamental questioning of the people who would be front runners at this point. Do you think that, um, it, look, she is raising this. Do you think it's smart? We had the conversation earlier about, do you think it's smart for her to do that? Because in that, right, she's, she's going to turn off a lot of older people. And of course, these are her words. She's bringing this up, that politicians are no longer in their prime, right? And that was according to her. And so I think she's going to, she's alienating I, yes, some people. I heard the earlier segment and I, I do understand what you're saying, but I think one thing you want to keep in mind is there is an active conversation about the gerontocracy going on in the U.S., meaning people were questioning Dianne Feinstein, the senator of California, and her competency in her job at this point. That was happening openly, Caitlin knows, in the political papers. And some of people's favorite you know, politicians, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whoever, are older. That doesn't mean people aren't acknowledging the fact that are you squeezing out another generation of potentials by having people kind of parked in these positions. And I just want to make one more point. You know, she is bringing up something very interesting, saying the quiet part out loud about Republicans losing the popular vote multiple times. And every time that happens, there's always an autopsy. We need to do this. We need to do that. And the kinds of politicians who would have stepped into the breach would have been Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Marco Rubio. And then Trump came along. So I think she's trying to reassert that position for a generation. But I have to stick up for older people here because it, it feels there's something that could feel ageist about this. And it stings when you say someone is in their prime in their 20s, 30s and 40s. Poppy's like, <gasps> it stings. And I why, understand like, why, why you're saying that, but on the right, there is a very just... strong questioning of Biden and his competency. Yeah. It is a key part of their argument against him. So she is merely tapping into something that exists already. Um, and then similarly with Trump, there is a lot of people who with Trump, 
you've played clips earlier who questioned his competency and did link it to his age. So I understand what you're saying that older voters might, you know, equivocate with this, but I don't think older voters look at these politicians and think, that's me, that's my proxy for me and my own <laughs> mental health, right? They look at these as singular characters and a question about who should run the country. I'm just simply looking at the people who traditionally show up to the polls. They're usually older people. Yeah, but they're smart. And they, you know, they make these decisions about who to vote for. And to your point earlier, you know, the idea of prime that you would Google on the Internet, that's about sexual and reproductive prime. That's not actually about, like, mental health and aging. And there has been so many advances. Well, those are my words. No, but I'm those just... Those are Nikki Haley's words. No, I, I'm... Yeah, but to yeah. be clear, like, you, you raised the question of that could somehow be a double-edged sword for her, that, you know, she could be out of her prime in some way. That's not how it works. I mean, people are really looking at folks who are in their 80s, upper tier, and who they are questioning every comment they make, every stumble, every stutter, and pointing to that in the political wars as some sort of sign of something. That's it, very different than saying... You have to have the, have the same saying, energy for that because there are people who feel offended by that. And again, I'm just... And I think it's individual. I don't think it's based yeah, on Yeah, but no one's going to look I at Nikki Haley individual. and say, is she in her prime or not? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there may be some people who would say... Because, again... I don't think people would be saying that if she didn't bring it up. It was her, her yeah. words. She's in her prime for running for office. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's prime. the thing. Political prime is what we're talking about can we, here. Can we do uh, one other thing? Because she, uh, she also talked about the whole idea of Nikki Haley. She's going to have to deal with sort of straddling the fence. And in this interview, she talked about that, about, um, about hang on one second, please. She talked about... Um, how, being judged harshly by history, saying that uh, after the insurrection that you said that Trump, this is a thing, quote, will be judged harshly by history. But then she went on to say that he was he was great for the party. Yeah. She does some things and says some things, but then it appears that she's sort of straddling the fence on these issues. Yeah, she does it on a lot of things. She does it on race as well. She, she talks about being a woman and then saying, I'm not into identity politics. I'm not black. I'm not white. But also, I don't care about those things. She sort of signals to a variety of people, hoping that something will catch. I mean, as to your point, I think that there's something to kind of like underscore there in, in how she's approaching that topic to try and um, draw in people. It's a little of a Rorschach test, right? Like, yeah. what do you think based on this statement? And she has to do that because she's the first, right? She's the one jumping in against Trump good and early. So she is trying to carve out a lane for herself. Yeah, which comes with pros and cons to be the first in the race. Yeah, we'll exactly. see who's next. Yeah. Audie. Always love. Thank you. Yeah, love thank you. All right. And stay with us next hour. We're going to discuss the reporting on some of the labor issues that Audie has done in the country and what that looks like. Ten days after the earthquake in Turkey, rescuers are still finding survivors in the rubble. A one woman asking her saviors what day it was when she emerged. Up next, we're going to talk to our Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He traveled with a helicopter team taking much-needed supplies like hospital tents. So they've just unloaded the tents here in Hatay. This is one of the hardest-hit areas in the quake zone. So it has been 10 days since the devastating earthquake that rocked Turkey and Syria, and somehow rescuers are still pulling survivors from the rubble, like the 17-year-old girl named Alina, still alive after 248 hours under that wreckage. And a mother and her two children also found alive. Her first question to rescuers, what day is it? 
CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now live from southeastern Turkey. Sanjay, hello to you. These are just devastating. It's a devastating situation there, but so many survivors like this needing shelter and support. You went to see some of the efforts. What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, these are remarkable stories. And, you know, people really rise up, Don, in these situations, as you know. I'm in Antakya, as you mentioned, one of the hardest hit areas. Give you a picture. I mean, those are the mountains over there. This area is very mountainous. That's been part of the problem. Don, this is a big hospital I want to show you over here. Uh, When I say big hospital, 1,100-bed hospitals, but totally not functioning anymore, totally damaged by the earthquake. So all these people who need medical care, they can no longer go to the biggest hospital in the area. And that's why this series of tents was essentially set up in the parking lot of this hospital to take care of people. It's a remarkable situation. The tone there, Don, is very much still search and rescue, and patients are still coming in, many of whom need a lot of aid. The skies over Turkey are continuously pierced with the sound of helicopter blades, still performing crucial search and rescue, but also delivering people and goods to places hard to access and now near isolated from the rest of the world, like Antakya in Hatay province. Look what the earthquake did in just minutes here. So many buildings raised to the ground. More than eight days later, too many people still going without even basic supplies. Donations continue to pour in from all over the world. To give you an idea, they have things like baby formula, These are safety hard hats over here. These are the types of things that are coming in. Over here you have bread. So they have all sorts of dry foods that are coming in. These are donations that are coming from individuals. Things like blankets and and warm clothes. And really, just as far as the eye can see, there's all sorts of supplies that are now trying to get from this airstrip to the people who desperately need them. Over and over again, spontaneous supply lines like this one form, and within minutes, Dozens and dozens of tents are loaded onto the helicopter. Today's mission, to provide cover and protection in Hatay, a province that has lost both. From the sky, it is easy to see why they are so necessary. A group of men can be seen waiting earnestly for their temporary new homes. They quickly unload the helicopter, struggling against the whir of the blades which never stop. So they've just unloaded the tents here in Hatay. This is one of the hardest hit areas in the quake zone. Off in the distance, a floating hospital, a near necessity after natural disasters like this. After all, as with most other buildings, the hospitals often don't survive either. These hospital ships provide immediate beds and operating rooms like this one, where 37-year-old Mehmet received an operation on his leg after falling two stories during the earthquake. Even a maternity ward. Yes, tragically, more than 40,000 people have died, but there has also been new life here, a beautiful baby girl. Another benefit, the captain tells me, unlike the field hospitals on firm ground, these hospital ships in the water are relatively protected from the numerous aftershocks that continuously devastated the land. For now, the ground is quiet, but the skies are loud, and that is good, as this part of the world slowly 
surely finds its footing. 40,000 people plus have died. We know these tragic numbers, but a lot of people survived are in need of care. And that's why these types of hospitals, these field hospitals have been set up now. This is one of the largest ones. And tomorrow, guys, we'll take you inside. Some remarkable stories of recovery uh, happening inside. We'll take you there tomorrow. Wow, that little girl being born. Sanjay, you've been on, you know, sadly, a lot of these really tragic scenes, but the scope of this one, it seems to be, it seems to be much larger than many of the situations like this you have covered. Well, you know, it's it's tough to put these things in perspective like that. Haiti was, uh, you know, obviously one of the worst. 100,000 people died there near instantly. 100,000 more people died over the next several months. That was awful. I, I was on a hospital ship over there in Haiti as well uh, where they needed to take care of patients. In part, again, I found so interesting the ship's maybe uh, insulated, buffered a a bit against all the aftershocks because they worry about that here. They can suddenly lose access to power and water and other things. So it's tough to compare one to the other, but um, this this has been pretty tragic out here, obviously. Yeah, Yeah, and it's such a long road ahead. Thank you, Sanjay. Appreciate that. And back here in the U.S., outraged in Ohio, residents feeling unsafe and uninformed after a toxic train derailed in their town. We're going to speak with one of them straight ahead. There's also just an outpouring of grief, but also support and a vigil for the victims who were killed in the Michigan State mass shooting. Coming up, we're going to talk to Senator Chris Murphy about his renewed effort for a universal background check law in wake of that shooting. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So right now, Ukrainians are grappling with the aftermath of what is being described as a terrible night of missile strikes in the southeastern part of Ukraine. At least one person is dead and eight others are injured following a series of attacks on critical infrastructure facilities. Officials say at least 60 homes have now been destroyed by the shelling. Ukrainian officials say Russia fired 36 missiles. Half of them were shot down. At least three missiles also hit critical infrastructure in Lviv, which is in the western region of Ukraine. There were no casualties or injuries there. I was in Lviv and I witnessed the aftermath of Russian missile strikes last, that was last March. And next Friday will mark one year to the day that those, that that, uh, assault was uh, launched on Ukraine there and that invasion by Russian President Vladimir Putin. So one year almost already. It's crazy that it's been that long. Yeah, it is. You saw what the, you know, um, what Jens Stoltenberg said yesterday, that this is a war of attrition and just grinding and grinding and grinding. And that's what Richard Haas reminded us of a few weeks ago, saying he thinks in six months it'll be like what it is now, right? I don't think a lot of people thought we'd be here a year later. No. Yeah. I, I certainly didn't. Well, and the question is how much longer does it go on? Harris, you know, is in Munich at that security conference this yes. weekend. It was at that moment last year when Zelensky went to it and she warned him about the invasion. And I think Ukrainians were still like hesitant about whether or not it was actually going to happen. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Remarkable. Uh, We're going to continue that and watch all of that as CNN This Morning continues right now. I'm done playing games. They're not playing games either. I'm not... It's not he said, she said. They screwed up our town, they're going to fix it. If they don't, I'll be the first one calling all you back to do this all over again. 
Yeah, residents brought lots of questions last night to that meeting. Good morning, everyone. You can see people in East Palestine, Ohio, are scared, they're angry, and they're fed up. They want to know if it is still safe to live in their own homes nearly two weeks after a train loaded with dangerous chemicals crashed in their small town. We're going to speak to a concerned mom who demanded answers last night at a heated town hall meeting. Also, thousands of people are gathering and gathered last night to honor three Michigan State University students killed in Monday's mass shooting. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut will join us live to discuss his renewed push for more gun safety laws to try to end this, end this endless bloodshed. Yeah, I can't wait for that interview. Also, just a few hours from now, we're going to see parts, just parts, though, of a special grand jury report that is examining Trump's efforts to overturn election results in Georgia. What might we learn? But we begin this morning in East Palestine, Ohio. You heard from the mayor just a few moments ago. People in his city are afraid to drink the water, breathe the air, even live in their own homes. Nearly two weeks after a train that was packed with dangerous, toxic chemicals crashed and burned in their small town, frustration bowled over at a heated town hall meeting last night as residents were demanding answers from officials. kids safe or the people safe is the future of this community safe the head of the epa is actually set to arrive in east palestine today to assess the disaster and the cleanup we're expected to hear from him the train was carrying vinyl chloride which has been associated with liver cancer lymphoma leukemia and brain and lung cancers the mayor said that he wants to know this from the epa administrator i need help I'm not ready for this. I, wa I wasn't built for this. I always thought of myself as a leader of men, and I have the village on my back, and I'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to make this right. Powerful, wor powerful words there as the railroad company Norfolk Southern has pulled out of last night's meeting. They were supposed to be there. They didn't go, they said, because of physical threats against their employees. In a statement, the company, though, says they are vowing to get the job done, saying, quote, our people will remain in East Palestine, respond to the situation and meet with residents. We are not going anywhere. CNN's Jason Carroll was at last night's meeting. You saw him there speaking to residents. Jason, I mean, you can understand why people are frustrated here. They want answers. These are people who have been living in East Palestine in this area for so long. And now they have major questions about how long they can continue to live there. Well, Caitlin, you're absolutely right. And, and some of the questions that they have, who's going to be here a year from now? Who's going to be here two years from now, five years from now? Is someone going to be monitoring their health years from now? Who's going to be responsible for that? What about, you know, the cost of their homes, depreciation in home values? A lot of questions that these residents had last night. And quite frankly, a lot of them felt as though they didn't get their questions answered. They feel like it's going to take more than one town hall one of the uh, representatives that they really wanted to be there was Norfolk uh, Southern uh, Railroad. And as you said, they bailed out at the 11th hour simply because they felt as though their employees would not be safe. And Caitlin, I have to tell you, the people that I spoke to really felt like that was adding insult to injury. Listen to what some had to say. Okay, well, if you're afraid that somebody from Palestine is going to hurt your employees, what exactly did you do to us? You feel the anger and frustration. I'm scared. From my family. I'm scared from my town. 
grew up here. I'm related to 50% of them. <laughs> Do you trust them when they say that the air has no. been tested and safe and that the municipal water is safe? There, no. I don't trust them. I don't know. So the cleanup effort is underway here. And Caitlin, I want to show you some of what's happening here. This is along an area called Leslie Run. This runs throughout East Palestine. Down here along this creek here, you can see what they're doing is they're aerating the water here. They're pumping more oxygen into this waterway with the hope that it will break down some of the chemicals. And I want to show you some of these blue tankers over in this direction. So what we're told is some of these tankers could end up containing some of that contaminated soil that they're going to be digging out and carrying out from the site of the derailment, bringing it here and then taking it to another location. So the cleanup effort out here continuing. And a lot of people out here feel as though they're wondering, how long is this effort going to take? Again, who's going to be responsible years from now? A lot of still unanswered questions. Caitlin. Yeah, the, the company saying that their employees were scared to go, but these residents are, are just as scared. They don't know how long that cleanup effort that you're seeing there is going to take. Jason Carroll, that's a fantastic report. Thank you. Yeah. And let's talk to one of them now, because joining me now, East Palestine resident Jamie Koza, who lives near the train derailment. She and her daughter were forced to flee their home, which is just steps away from the creek. She attended the town hall last night. This is what she said at the town hall. Jamie, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. After two full weeks since the derailment, you're not in your home. The frustration is clear. How are you guys doing? We're holding up. Um, we're still at the hotel here. Um, luckily, here in West Virginia at the Holiday Inn, they're treating us really good. Um, but the baby's getting a little tired. She's three. Um, she keeps saying she wants to go home crying. Is our, our house broken? How am I going to get my toys? Uh, you know, all the natural stressors of a three-year-old. Yeah. Look, the frustration is you, you don't know. There are just so many unanswered questions, right? And you have officials saying, well, it's safe to go back. It's safe to go back. I'm not sure with the governor on saying I'm not, I wouldn't drink the water, but how do you explain to people what that is like? Because there's this, you want to be back in your homes, but you can't. So what do you do? Uh, it's not just our homes. I feel like I can't be back in my town. Mm. Um, and that's what one had just messaged me on Facebook and said, you know, I'm stuck in my home because I have a mortgage. People are feeling like they're being forced back because they don't have money to go anywhere else. Um, and she shared with me, you know, where would I go? I said, we're not sure where we're going to go. Uh, you know, my family has been in that area for generations. Uh, it's home. I don't know where else to go. But what I do know is I can't go back there. What is it going to take, Jamie, to make you feel safe at this point? Is there anything? Um, I think at this point that there is. You know, they did tell me yesterday the railroad offered to pay all of my moving expenses. Um my house is not safe to be in. The only reason why I know that is because when they came to do air testing, 
I was demanding to know about the soil and the water that's seven steps um, from my porch. So the railroad sent out his toxologist um, who deemed my house not safe. But had I not used my voice, had I not thrown a fit, I would be sitting in that house right now when they told me that it was safe. And my concern is how many of those kids are laying in their bed in East Palestine right now that are not safe, who was not afforded the same, uh, you know, special attention that I got from the railroad. You know, they told me that it was safe to go home. Had I gone home, would I be here right now to talk to you? I absolutely do not trust them. Uh, you know, the first thing I did was reach out to a friend of mine um, at the nonprofit River Valley Organizing. Uh, we are having a meeting next week. We're bringing in scientists from the University of Kentucky in Pittsburgh. They will be offering free soil and water samples to anyone in our town. Uh, you know, that's what needs to happen now. We as a community have to fight this or no one else is. Listen, all of this has taken you not more than outside of your routine. I mean, there are things that you have to do now that you didn't have to do before, right? Because you were comfortably in your home. This costs money. Who's paying for all of this? The hotel, et cetera. Um, the railroad has been paying for the hotel since day one. The issue with that is the closest hotel we could find is about a 60-mile round trip. We are very rural. We were being told that we had to come back to East Palestine each day to turn in the receipts so that we could afford the next night in the hotel. Uh, you know, they since then have moved that assistance center outside of town. Saturday, we waited six hours to get our reimbursement. Um, so the, the railroad is dealing with that part of it. Uh, but to me, there's a bigger issue. It's not about the money. It's about our health. They can give me as much money as they want. It wouldn't have brought my daughter back to life had I taken her into that house when they said it was okay. Jamie, Koza, be well. We thank you for joining us. Okay, keep us updated. I just say one more quick thing. Absolutely. Uh, we're holding that community meeting on the 23rd at 6 o'clock. It'll be at Studio 25, which is at 25 North Market. If you want independent done, please come to that meeting and we're going to get you the testing you deserve. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Poppy? Yeah. What an important conversation, Don. Thank you for that. An emotional vigil last night on Michigan State University's campus where hundreds of students, faculty, staff, people from all over that community came with flowers to honor the victims. Arielle Anderson, Alexandria Werner, Brian Frazier, the three students killed in Monday's attack. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, also an MSU alum, called for change in gun laws. We shouldn't have to live like this. We shouldn't have to subconsciously scan every room for an exit, go through the grim exercise of figuring out who our last call would be to. Our campuses, churches, classrooms, and communities should not be battlefields. And so it's okay if you feel frustrated or angry or sad, because we are the only country in the world where guns are the number one killer of young people. We have also learned that the killer was previously charged with a felony, but pleaded out to a misdemeanor, and therefore was still able to buy new guns. 
With me now, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He has made gun safety legislation his life's work since the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary. Today, he is reintroducing legislation to expand federal background checks to all gun sales. Good morning, Senator, and thank you. Good morning. Let's show people this picture. It's um, last year, you went to MSU, you spoke to students, um, and you've tweeted about gun tragedy after gun tragedy after gun tragedy. Look at Michigan, right? Kalamazoo, Oxford, now MSU. Could you speak about what you're reintroducing again, the Background Check Expansion Act, and if you think could it have saved these three students' lives? I was proud to you know, be at Michigan State last year. You know, part of my work is trying to help build a national anti-gun violence movement that will make our kids safer. And I was there in part to thank a small group of Michigan State students that were starting uh, a chapter of an anti-gun violence organization. But it also pains me that children have to spend their time trying to convince adults to just do the right thing. Uh, the fact that my 14-year-old has to talk to his friends about how they can organize to make sure that their schools are safe, um, it just says that there's something deeply wrong about this country. Um, what we're introducing today is a measure that is wildly popular in this country. It's a requirement that every commercial sale have a background check attached to it. If you want to buy a gun, you should have to prove that you're not a criminal, that you're not seriously mentally ill. The problem is many states um, have chosen not to apply background checks to internet sales mm -hmm. and sales at gun shows. That means that criminals know how to buy guns without being detected as a criminal. So all of the crime guns that get used in places like New York and Connecticut, the majority of crime guns, um, are bought in states that don't apply universal background checks. So the quickest way to make our country safer, mm -hmm. the quickest way to stop a lot of this gun crime in our cities uh, is to have a universal background checks requirement. That's what we're reintroducing today. It's supported by 90% yeah. of the American public. And you say reintroducing because you've introduced this multiple times before, including when uh, Democrats had control of both, cha both chambers of Congress. Um, and I know you've got Republican uh, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick on the side, on your side, right, introducing the companion legislation. I just wonder if you couldn't get it through then, when Democrats had more control, how do you get it through now? I think it's a good point, right? Right now, we just don't have Republicans uh, at the r numbers we need to pass something like this, which is wild. I mean, 90% of Americans think that everybody should get a background check before they buy a gun. Like, why aren't Republicans supporting this? And, you know, there's just a legacy of NRA power, of gun lobby power um, that is being eroded, but it's not completely gone. Um, your question is, you know, are things changing? And they just are. Uh, last year, we passed the most significant gun safety bill in 30 years, really the first comprehensive gun safety bill in 30 years. It did expand background checks. People said that that couldn't be done. A whole bunch of Republicans voted for that measure that just frankly six months earlier had opposed many of the things in that bill. Mm -hmm. The politics on this are changing really fast. A lot of Republicans are changing their mind because they actually realize that the gun lobby isn't as powerful as it used to be. So yes, um, this looks like an uphill battle, especially mm -hmm. with a Republican House. But a lot of people said that we weren't going to be able to pass 
pass the bill we passed last year with red flag laws mm -hmm. and bans on guns to domestic abusers. But we did because the issue is moving pretty yeah. fast. Which I should note, uh, encouraging states to adopt red flag laws, one that Michigan does not have. Before we move on to China, Senator, the, the shooter, Anthony McRae, was able to buy these two guns after he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor firearms charge. That was pleaded down, right? He was charged with a felony. But because it was a misdemeanor, he was able to buy the guns, even though the AG's office in Michigan says, no, he shouldn't have been able to. I wonder if you believe that uh, even though a misdemeanor firearms conviction does not prevent someone from buying a gun federally, only a felony does, if that should change, if you should reexamine if a misdemeanor firearms charge should prevent people from buying guns. So I don't think every misdemeanor charge should or conviction should ban you permanently from buying firearms. But I think there are certain misdemeanor charges that should. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a quick example of actually how we found consensus on that last year. Um, prior to the law we passed last year, if you were convicted of a misdemeanor domestic violence charge, um, you could still possess guns. But what we realized is just like with this shooter, what normally happens with domestic violence is that a really heinous act is committed, but in order in order to avoid a trial, the individual pleads down to a misdemeanor domestic violence charge, even though they beat the heck out of their wife or their spouse. Right. So we fixed that. And now if you're convicted of a misdemeanor domestic violence charge, you can't buy a gun. And Republicans supported that. Mm -hmm. I think we should take a look at that when it comes hmm. to these, gun these illegal gun possession charges. Mm -hmm. I I'm not completely familiar with all of the variety of misdemeanor charges, but we right. certainly have precedent for applying the prohibition mm -hmm. to misdemeanors. That's, that's interesting. And something to look at. Let's move on to China because you sit on the Foreign Relations Committee. You guys had this briefing for senators yesterday about the threats broadly that the U.S. faces from China right now. I thought it was interesting that your Republican uh, colleague in the Senate, Josh Hawley, said the U.S. should be more forceful right now, given all of this and its relationship with China. And he talked about and suggested sanctions. And I, I wonder if you agree with him. I worry that there are some members of Congress uh, who are rooting for conflict and war with China. We've always had um, uh, hawks and warmongers in Washington that think the United States is better off if we're perpetually in conflict. Um, obviously, um, what happened is absolutely unacceptable, and there were repercussions. The visit by uh, Secretary of State Blinken was canceled. Um, but uh, I also want to make sure that we don't sort of slip into conflict mm -hmm. with China, a country uh, with which we have $6 trillion worth of trade every year. So um, we need to continue to pursue a, a policy in which we are competing with China as mm -hmm. an adversary. Um, but we aren't making mistakes just because um, of uh, you know, something that shows up in the in the headlines. Mm -hmm. We have to have a thoughtful policy mm -hmm. of managed competition with uh, with China. I, I I think China is very embarrassed by this incident. I, I think there's evidence to suggest that it may not have been uh, intentional, at least initially. Uh, and uh, let's judge China by its actions as to uh, how they move forward from this incident. Okay. Finally, I do want to ask you, because you also sit on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders. Your, your committee has written a letter asking Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz to come testify on March 9th, alleging, quote, a lack of compliance with federal labor laws. This is about how Starbucks deals with the unions. And Howard Schultz has now declined that request. Starbucks says he's leaving in April, and therefore they would like to send someone else, the head of their public affairs office, to testify. I wonder what you make of that. 
Well, I think they're just trying to avoid embarrassment. Starbucks has been um, really involved in a super aggressive campaign to stop uh, their workers from organizing. I've seen it firsthand uh, in Connecticut where workers are trying to organize in West Hartford and Willimannock, uh, and their CEO should come and testify. Um, he actually has been overseeing and orchestrating this campaign. Whether or not he's leaving, he's responsible for the conduct that we are trying to investigate. The fact of the matter is these big corporations just have too much power in America, and unions um, are a way that workers can get a, an even uh, chance at the negotiating table with these giant mega corporations. So, yes, Schultz should come and testify. He shouldn't be afraid of Congress. Remember, once he wanted to you know, be president of the United States. So he has shown an interest in engaging in public policy. All of a sudden, he doesn't seem to want to talk to us when it's the, um, I, I think, potentially illegal uh, actions of his company that are under scrutiny. Quickly, will, will your committee subpoena him? Is it that important for you to hear from him? I don't know. Okay. Thank you, Senator. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't talked to Senator Sanders about it yet. All right. Well, thank you, Senator. Thank you. Okay. Caitlin. Just so interesting to see what he's tried to do before, what he's trying to do now, but also probably acknowledging that reality about it getting through Congress. We'll stay with that. Also today, we're tracking a judge in Georgia who is about to release parts of a special grand jury report on Trump's actions after the 2020 election. What are we going to learn? What are we not going to learn? That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, any moment now, a Georgia judge is going to make public parts of a grand jury report on that investigation into election interference by former President Trump and his allies in the states. But most of that is going to remain sealed and secret as a local prosecutor is considering charges. Joining us now to talk about what we could see is former U.S. attorney from Georgia's Middle District, Michael Moore. Michael, good morning to you and thank you for being here. Just how unprecedented is it to get a report like this, even if we're not getting all of it? Well, well, I'm glad to be with all of you. Thanks for having me on. It, we, we really are in unprecedented times. Georgia does not often use a special purpose grand jury. And so you don't, these reports don't come out as a matter of course anyway. We typically just have a, a regular criminal grand jury that makes a decision on whether or not there'll be an indictment issued. So the judge is, is going through some uncharted waters. There's not a playbook to pull this from. There's not a form book that the district attorney's office could have written the report or helped the grand jury write the report from. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting time. He's been fairly uh, Solomonic in his decision about uh, honoring the public's need to have some information about this investigation, at the same time uh, recognizing that the prosecutor needs to make her decision and, that's, and that potential defendants have, have due process rights and he doesn't want to get, get the card ahead of the horse and let everything out. Yeah. Well, what about the idea that we're not going to see all of it as they are that's still right. considering charges? You know, why not release all of it? Well, th there could be reasons to, to keep grand jury information secret, and it is a secretive process. And, and if you think about it, if your name was mentioned in the grand jury and you ultimately were not charged with the crime, um, you, you wouldn't want a report out there saying that, that you'd been discussed. And so it protects uncharged people. It also protects investigations to not have the information out there. And it potentially protects witnesses from intimidation or contact. Uh, by the parties in a case to see if they could move their testimony one way or another. So uh, the, the, the parts of the report that he's going to release are pretty benign. It sounds like he's going to talk generally about their introduction. He's going to allow the, the, the report to come out with redactions about some, some concerns the grand jury may have had with uh, people who were less than forthcoming 
uh, during the case. But, uh, but again, the, the ultimate charge is sort of the meat uh, is not going to be with the potatoes yet uh, in this case. <laughs> uh, also, you know, one person who was involved in those efforts in Georgia was Mark Meadows, Trump's mm-hmm. former chief of staff at the time. He went down and visited an election audit site. He was on the phone with Raffensperger when Trump was asking for more votes. I've also learned overnight that the special counsel who's got the grand jury investigating January 6th has subpoenaed Mark Meadows. And I wonder, you know, what does that indicate to you? What does it signal to you that Jack Smith is now wanting to talk and get documents from Mark Meadows? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really think that it, it tells us that his investigation may be uh, coming to a head. Uh, he's subpoenaed the, the former vice president, who has sort of taken the tack that he should be able to write about it in his book, but not testify about it in front of a grand jury, which I, I think is so hypocritical. But we're at a place now where he's talking about Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, a former chief of staff. And so he needs Meadows to sort of tie everything together. I mean, if you can imagine trying to describe a football game without talking about the quarterback, Meadows was essentially the quarterback at the White House. And for the Trump administration, his hands were on everything that happened. He was at immediate and in close contact with the former president. He dealt with the aides. He dealt with the Secret Service. He dealt with the staff at the White House. So he is the sort of the top of the pyramid when it comes to the knowledge about what went on with Trump's planning and discussions that may have been around January the 6th. If he tries to argue executive privilege to fight that subpoena, does it have any merit in your view? I think he probably ought to go read the Nixon case that the Supreme Court addressed executive privilege in these types of circumstances. There, there's a need for executive privilege, and that is so that you can have a deliberative process, but you aren't allowed to use it as a shield to hide criminal conduct uh, and so or potential criminal conduct. And so uh, discussions and grand jury inquiries, that, that's, that's a time when uh, I think the executive privilege won't hold for him. I think it's a way to run out the clock. It's a way to be combative. But at the end of the day, I don't have any doubt that he's going to end up testifying about exactly what went on in the White House. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, Michael Moore, Mm -hmm. no one better to talk about all of this with as we are waiting for parts of that report to come out. Thank you for joining us this morning. I love to have a fellow Southerner on the program. Well, it's fun to be with you. Thanks for having me (laughs) Thanks, Michael. It's so interesting what he said in bringing up U.S. versus Nixon and what the Supreme Court ultimately said, right? The shield only goes so far. He said Meadows is going to end up testifying, he thinks. Okay, any minute now, the Labor Department will release the weekly jobless claims. We'll break it all down for you ahead. Also this morning's number, 373,000. What does it have to do with the job market? Harry Anton will explain next. Harry. Love the song, love the movie, working nine to five. That may have been true when Dolly Parton sang that song back in the 80s, but now that seems really like a luxury. A growing number of Americans are working not one, but two full-time jobs, and it's not just about a side hustle for extra cash. In many cases, it's really to make ends meet. So Harry Hinton is here to break down this morning's number. Good morning to you. So what's the number? Okay, this morning's number is... 373,000. That's the Americans who work two full-time jobs in 2022. That's up 61% since 2013, up 22% since 2019. So a massive jump. And what's so interesting about that massive jump is compared to other ways that Americans might be working, right? Full-time is working 35-plus hours a week. Look, the Americans working just one full-time job, that's up only 1% since 2019. Americans working two jobs, one full-time, one part-time, that's actually down 4% since 2019. So the Americans that are working two, both full-time jobs, 
up 22% since 2019, is truly an outlier, Don. So who are the people working these two jobs? Yeah, so here's the question. Who are the people who are working these two jobs? Is it people who are working because they want to make a ton of extra money, right? If we look at each worker's medium family income, if you're working one part-time job, the family median income is sixty dollars to $75,000. If you're working one full-time job, it's seventy-five dollars to $100,000 on the family median income. And then look, it's the same for those working two jobs, one full, one part, and two working both full-time jobs, seventy-five dollars to $100,000. So the idea is it's not these people who are going in and trying to make gobbles and gobbles of cash. Essentially, these people who are working two full-time jobs are basically trying to get back to the point of those who are making just one full-time job. But there are dem different demographics who are doing there it, There right? absolutely are. So take a look here. What percentage of workers are black? Full-time, again, working 35-plus hours a week. If you're working one part-time job, 10% of those workers are black. One full-time job, about 12% of those. Two jobs, one full, one part-time, about 15% of those are black. But two, both full-time, 21% of them are black. So black Americans are making up a much larger share of those who are working two full-time jobs than, say, just working one full-time job. And there is one other group. It's males. It's males. So take a look here. Those Americans who are working one part-time job, 38% of them are males. But take a look here. Working two full-time jobs, 61%. A much larger share are males than they are of, say, the rest of the groups. Those are very interesting numbers. Thank you, Thank Harry you, Hinton. Don. Appreciate it. So we're not just seeing shifts in how much people are working, but also in what they want from their bosses. I'm talking about unions. A new generation of labor organizers is popping up in industries that traditionally were not ones with a big union push. Um, baristas, warehouse workers, grocers, what do they want? When do they want it? Here's what a labor organizer told our Audie Cornish. The purpose of, of organizing and the purpose of movements isn't just to win a particular issue or a particular right is to win long-term dignity, sustainability, and the ability to engage in decision-making for all aspects of your life forever. CNN's Audie Cornish joins us now, the host of The Assignment with Audie Cornish, a fabulous podcast. I'm looking forward to that episode. I I'm fascinated by this, this sort of sweeping of corporate America with unionization movements. And I think a lot of people would take issue with that statement I just yeah. made because the numbers are down from a decade ago. But they started popping in the last year or so. So to put it in perspective, overall union participation, which is the number yes. you're talking about, is still quite low. What's different is the number of union petitions and drives. That went up um, more than 45% last year, which means that people are forming small unions or at least nosing into that territory and reaching out to the National Labor Relations Board to have that conversation. And it's happening in places that traditionally, and by traditionally I mean just the last couple of years, seem totally impenetrable. Amazon, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, you name it, there are these small union drives happening. Tesla's dealing with one today where yeah, they're being accused that. of retaliating against workers who had just begun a union drive. So some of these companies are in the midst of a reckoning as you have this participation creeping up on their shop floors. Is this, it's not your grandmother or grandfather's union, right? Is it, is it different? 
Yeah, that's what we talked about on the podcast. We actually spoke to a 23-year-old barista who was one of the so-called Memphis Seven. They had been fired by Starbucks for unionizing, and the federal government said that that was unlawful and had to reinstate them. And she said herself, I only thought... Um, like sort of burly men and construction workers. She she had a very sort of limited idea of like who could unionize and why. She was like, I didn't know me making a cup of coffee could unionize. And the truth is in Starbucks in particular, it happened in Buffalo and in Memphis, the workers themselves out of the pandemic, which is another important issue here, are the ones who said, we've got some conditions we don't feel good about, and they started to organize themselves. And you're seeing that over and over again. People organize themselves, and then they reach out to the larger labor unions for that infrastructure and support. You've covered this, Bobby, so intensively. I feel like it does seem like a new generation of what unions look like. But I guess a question I have is, is why? Because one thing I was reading is, you know, at a Starbucks in Chicago, the management told workers they should discourage people who aren't paying customer, customers from using the restroom or spending any time in the store. And the employees did not like that. They were pushing back on that. And that is part of what drove them. To yeah. Notice. And Poppy, I'd love your opinion on this because I think some of these CEOs, especially like your Starbucks or your Trader Joe's, they're like, we're the nice guys. We have yeah. such an amazing culture. You know, Google's the same thing. Some of these workers are pushing for your typical wage, labor, benefit support and better conditions. After the great resignation, so to speak, when people kind of moved jobs. Well, when they got to their new jobs, they were like, well, I, I want to be treated well. I have different ideas about what it means to be in a supportive work environment. I want to speak up if I feel like I'm being abused. It's a different generation that is more willing to speak up. Yeah, I think just, just point of fact is that I find it really interesting what's happening because it's this union push is happening at a number of really progressive companies. So Starbucks is arguably one of the most, if not the most progressive company. They've given health care to their workers this before the Affordable Care Act, right? Uh, one of the higher wages, um, free college tuition. And so that's what the CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, points to and says, we've given all of this, right? What the union wants, Starbucks Workers United, is in their words, power sharing and accountability, a seat at the table. They want to directly negotiate for that. So it's different than you're saying, we want a higher wage, we want this. I just Yeah, but that is a traditional model when you think of the right. Detroit Three and uh, sort of, the, I'm it sorry, is. the car makers and union people there. And we should note that when it comes to Starbucks, they implemented changes at the stores that apply to everyone but the union shops. Yes. So the sort of, I won't call it officially retaliation, but we this is the year we're going to see some of these corporations fight back. Yes, and so this is why Howard Schultz has been subpoenaed. Um, in March, he is the, uh, not subpoenaed, excuse me. This is why Howard Schultz has been invited to testify right. in March. We'll see if there's a subpoena. He has declined. Starbucks is going to send someone else. I just spent a few days talking to him about all this, so you'll see it on the program um, next week. But it is fascinating, and it's really an important moment for, these, the for issue, all of these voices. The issues are quite different, especially, I would imagine, coming out of COVID, too. There are things that people, and they exactly. want to work from home. That was a That's big, a really yeah. good point. You're seeing a white-collar unionization movement as well. Again, companies that previously we thought nobody would want to unionize there, and now they are. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Audie. I can't wait to listen to the episode. Such a good look. Be sure to tune in. The Assignment with Audie Cornish, available now wherever you get your podcasts. And also... Special treat. Audio is going to be joining us tomorrow. Don's going to be off. Hobby's going to be on assignment, anchoring from Salt Lake City. I've got my my hoodie at the ready. I, <laughs> I am here <laughs> to just leave your glasses behind. <laughs>
<laughs> a glass clear out way this, this is a hot seat, but <laughs> you will be able to handle it, I'm sure. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, my only, I wish, I wish I was here to be with all of you tomorrow. Yeah, and you're going to be in Utah, Poppy. I'll be in Utah. We're going to cover the NBA All-Star Weekend. I will be interviewing three members of the iconic Inside the NBA Crew uh -oh. Shack. Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith. I can't wait. I'm not going to try to dunk. Not going to try to do anything <laughs> fancy. But I can't wait to be with them. You know, they're never candid or anything. You right? should be sitting yeah. at that table with them. I'd like. Then to we're going to do that. Time. We're yeah. taping that this afternoon. You'll see it tomorrow morning on the show. I'll also sit down with the Utah Jazz owner Ryan Smith and the WNBA commissioner Kathy Engelbert. So see you if I wake up in the middle of the night tomorrow. <laughs> it's like 2 a.m. or something. You got to tell that Charles Barkley I said roll tide. Okay, I obviously will for you. Um, just into CNN, we got some new jobs data from the Labor Department. 194,000 first-time applications for new unemployment benefits last week. That's down a little bit from the week before. New unemployment claims continue to hover around historic lows. The Fed has raised interest rates eight times over 11 months trying to get this under control. But the battle to bring down prices has not crushed America's white-hot jobs market. Also today, Tiger Woods is returning to competitive golf the first time in seven months. He wants everyone to know he is playing to win. If I'm, if I'm playing in the event, I'm, I'm going to try and beat you. Um, I'm there to get a W. It's a big day for Tiger Woods fans, my dad, including him, and the man himself. <laughs> Tiger Woods, not my dad, is returning to competitive golf today at the Genesis Invitational in California, marking his first official PGA event since July. CNN's Stephanie Elam has more from the Pacific Palisades. I would not have put myself out here if I didn't think I could beat these guys and, and win the event. Um, that's my mentality. A confident Tiger Woods, making it clear he wants that win at the Genesis Invitational this week, an event he's hosted since 2017. Held at the Riviera Country Club in swanky Pacific Palisades, the tournament holds a special place in Woods' historic career. At 16, he played his first PGA Tour event here in 1992, but he's never won it. Now 47, Woods will make his 2023 tour debut at the Invitational, despite still battling pain from injuries he sustained two years ago in that terrifying car accident while in town for this same event. That he's alive and well is, is good. It's, it's nothing short of a miracle considering the damage. His right leg was broken in multiple places, his bone protruding through his skin, plus other injuries and several surgeries. The leg is better than it was last year, uh, but it's, it's my ankle. And so being able to uh, have it recover from day to day and, and meanwhile still stress it, but have the recovery and also have the strength development at the same time. Uh, it's been an intricate little balance that we've had to dance. Did you think he would ever play golf again after that car accident? I'm going to be honest and say no, that I didn't think he did. He's been pretty upfront about the fact that he could have very easily lost his leg and then now play tournament golf is kind of bonkers. But Tiger's success on the course may hinge less on his golf game and more on what his body will let him do. If you didn't know what you know, you'd say, wow, Tiger looks pretty good. The problem is, is getting to the ball. Golfers are required to traverse the course themselves, no golf carts. So for Tiger, the biggest challenge may be walking 72 holes in four days. 
Yet some of his competitors are glad to see Tiger return to his natural habitat. This being only his fourth official event in the last two years. We didn't know if he was he was going to be able to do this again. And so just to have him out here on the grounds and to, to see him around doing what he loves to do is a lot of fun for us. His golf game looks great. Uh, really good sign to see him in the field and feeling willing and able to kind of get out here. And while there have been years when injuries kept Woods off the green, every time he does return, fans clamor to see him. He is still like the biggest planet in the solar system. Nothing really matters quite like Tiger. As for that win, could he actually snag it? I would never say never with Tiger. I think you do that at your own peril. Now, as far as that win goes, I'm told it's highly unrealistic that Tiger could pull that W. However, if he does make the cut, that would be a huge accomplishment in and of itself. But Poppy, Don, and Caitlin, I got to tell you, yesterday I was here and I saw Tiger come up off the course. The energy that starts to buzz when that man is around. Yeah. He has done so much for this game, still does, and he is still very much doing so much for PGA and that tour overall. The man is uh, really an entity unto himself when it comes to this game. Yeah. Yep. 72 holes in four days. Only something wow. that someone in their prime could do. <laughs> Stephanie. Touche, Caitlin. Let's not bring the, Stephanie into this. The whole point of this what is, is like, Caitlin getting at here? What is Caitlin trying to say? Oh, just go oh, back oh. to the 6 a.m. hour. Just, Replay it. The whole point is that the whole point of the package was that, oh, my God, I can't believe he's performing so well at his age and with his injuries. Yeah, That's I think, yeah, given what he's been through, he's, he's had a crazy, right. crazy so, career. There you go. Thanks for proving that. I think that. because he almost <laughs> died. Maybe that part. He, almost, he could have died in that car accident. Maybe That's that. really what's phenomenal. Yeah, Thank absolutely. Thanks, Stephanie. Stephanie. Thank you. Donna Kelsey was one of the biggest stars of Super Bowl week after her boys made history in the big game. How they reacted to her very special moment. That's up next. Oh. The moment I saw mom is when I got really emotional because, man, it was so awesome. <sighs> A huge crowd lining the streets to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs' second championship in four years with the star tight end Super Bowl champion Travis Kelsey's mom, Donna, our favorite Second favorite mom in America, sorry mom, uh, was there. <laughs> Travis and his brother Jason became the first brothers to ever play against each other in a Super Bowl. They got emotional talking about their mom's moment in the spotlight. The moment I saw mom is when I got really emotional because, man, it was so awesome. <sighs> All right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It was awesome for, you know, she was on top of the world for, for a week. She was the heavyweight champ, man. Ironically, you know, you, you lose the Super Bowl. And you're, you're crying after the game. And they're not tears of sadness. You know, they're tears of joy. I mean, that warmed even my cold heart. No. <laughs> that was amazing. As a mama's boy, I totally relate. I'm sitting here tearing up. That is fantastic. Everything Can I tell them what you just fine, said? Fine, sure. Luca, so Poppy has been out of town on assignment. And when you got home, was it when you got home? Mm -hmm, last Luca night. Luca said, I feel it in my body when you're gone, mommy. <laughs> and we now I'm getting up, on another plane. I feel like a terrible mom. Oh, you're not, I'm so you're glad. Awesome we're glad mom. you're back, We all Pops. know it.
CNN News. Luke is not the only one who's Thank you. Thank you. CNN Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.